I'd like to start just by reading from part of a book by Philip Yancey. He's a pastor in America, and this is a true story he tells about a friend of his. Not long ago, I sat in a restaurant and listened to yet another variation on a familiar theme. A good friend of mine, whom I'll call Daniel, confided that he had decided to leave his wife after 15 years of marriage. He had met someone younger and prettier, someone who makes me feel alive like I haven't felt in years. Daniel, a Christian, knew well the personal and moral consequences of what he was about to do. His decision to leave would inflict permanent damage on his wife and three children. Even so, he said, the force pulling him towards the younger woman was too strong to resist. I listened to his story with sadness and grief. Then, during the dessert course, he dropped the bombshell. The reason I wanted to see you tonight was to ask you a question. Do you think God can forgive something as awful as I am about to do? Do you think God can forgive something as awful as I am about to do? How would you answer that question? Or maybe I could ask you a different question. Will God forgive me if I drive over the speed limit on my way home from church today? Will God forgive me if I go out with my friends and get drunk tonight? Will God forgive me for anything I do as a follower of Jesus? And if he will, why not just do it? Why not have an affair? Why not sin? If I'm forgiven, and if I can't lose my forgiveness, why not sin? That's the question Romans 6 is addressing for us this morning. So this term we've been looking through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and he's been explaining from the start the gospel, God's news of forgiveness. And the whole book of Romans is really just explaining very clearly what it is to be a Christian, what it is to trust Jesus. Unlike other letters which are written to a church to address a specific problem, like Galatians is addressing a problem in the church and Corinthians is addressing a problem in the church, Romans is just, Paul is just laying out the gospel to this church that he hasn't met before. In great detail, he's just explaining God's good news to us. So Romans 1 and 2, if you can remember back then, or if you were here, was about our problem, how we say no to God and we live life our own way. And the consequences of that, the terrible consequences of that for our world and for ourselves. And then in Romans 3, we saw how God makes us right with him through Jesus. He forgives us and he repairs our relationship with him. And then in Romans 4, we saw that this is about trusting Jesus. It's not through what you do. In other words, you don't become a Christian and get forgiven and then you have to do some things to stay a Christian. No, you are forgiven just by trusting Jesus. That is, that is what forgives you. Now, if all that is true that we've been seeing, if being right with God is not about what I do, it's about trusting Jesus, the next, next logical question is, does it matter what I do? 
Can someone who trusts Jesus do whatever they want and they'll be forgiven? Paul's question here at the start of Romans 6 is even stronger than that. Paul says, and I think he's thinking as an outsider here, so I don't think a Christian would would, uh, think this way. I've never met anyone who does. But if you were hearing about it for the first time, this might be an objection you would have when you hear the message about Jesus. Paul says you could argue that, well, if the more we sin, the more God gets to forgive us, that means our sin makes God look good. So why not just sin all the more so God can be all the more generous? That's, what he's, that's the question in Romans 6.1. Have a look at it there. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you had a big motivation for not doing wrong. That was called the law. But we were never under the law. We're, we're under grace We're not under the Ten Commandments, and we've been forgiven by God for anything we we do wrong, so what's our motivation for doing good? If you were at at high school, or you can remember back that time, or if you've got children at high school, and just imagine for a moment that someone gets promoted to the top maths class. Well, they've been doing really well. They get promoted to the top maths class. Now, their position in that class will probably be conditional on how well they go. In other words, don't do any work, bomb out, ignore your homework, fail, you'll probably get kicked out. You'll probably get demoted down to the lower maths class. That there is motivation to work hard. Or my cousin got selected to play first grade NRL for the Canberra Raiders, go the Raiders, a few years ago. He knew that if he did not perform at his absolute best he would get dropped down to the second grade, to the Premier League. That there would be motivation to try hard. What is our motivation as followers of Jesus? Because our motivation for doing good, it is not from fear of losing our forgiveness. If we've seen anything the last couple of weeks, it's this. No matter what you do wrong... God's not going to drop you off the team. So what's our motivation for how we live? Well, that's what chapter 6 is addressing. And Paul gives us two answers. You can see them on your outline there. And the first reason why we would want to not sin is this. It's because we have a new life in Christ. Let's follow it from Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, if you come at it and you think being a Christian just means being forgiven, you've only got half the story. Being a Christian is a lot more than just being forgiven. It means you have a new life. 
You have a new life to live because you've been united with Jesus. Have a look at verse 5. If we have been united with him, with Christ, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The language Paul's using here, it's a little bit complicated, it's not perhaps the way we normally think there in verse 5, is that we have been united with Christ. In Romans 3, we were thinking about how Jesus was our substitute. It, It was like at a football game, we went off, he came on, so Jesus died instead of us. This is different and a bit more than that. Here is the language that we actually died with him. We were united with him. By his spirit, we were joined to Jesus. The language the New Testament uses is that we are in him. What that means is what is true of Jesus is true of us. This is a really simple example. I apologise before I use it. But it's a bit like when you go skydiving. I had a friend who went skydiving and she got strapped to the instructor. So she got joined to her instructor. She got united to her instructor. So if that's you, when you're, wherever your instructor goes, you go. They jump out of the plane, you're out of the plane. They fall, you fall. They land safely, you land safely. When you are joined to them, what happens to them happens to you, for good or for bad. Paul is saying we were united with Jesus. So verse 4 says, when he died, we died. We died to our old life of sin. And verse 5 says, when he rose, we were given a new life. And so to think about what life now looks like for us as Christians who are in Christ, we need to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, Paul says, we see that Jesus lives for God, not for sin. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus lives to the glory of his Father. And Paul says, if we're united to him, that's the life we should live to. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That phrase, count yourselves dead to sin, it means think about it, reflect on who you are. You are not a disobedient sinner anymore who hates God and who is in slavery to sin and who wants to do wrong. That is not you if you're in Christ. That's not who you are. You have been made into a new person and you actually want to serve God. So next time you are tempted to do wrong, consider this. Count yourself dead to sin. Think about it, Paul says. Take a step back and look at yourself And realise this is not who I am now. 
I don't want to do this. This is part of who I was before I was a follower of Jesus. Why would I want to go back to it? I wouldn't want to go back to it. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. So the, questions of, the question of Romans 6, 1 is, can I sin more so that God can show his grace to me all the more? Paul says, no way, that is a crazy way to think. God's grace is not just that he's forgiven you. God's grace is that he has given you a new life. God's grace is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, go straight to heaven so that you can keep doing wrong. God's grace is that he has made you into a new person. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Be who you are. Now, in the second half of Romans 6, Paul's going to think a little bit more about what it means that we were slaves to sin. And he raises another similar question in verse 15, And he uses it to give us another reason why we won't want to sin. The question is a little bit different to the question in verse 1. It's a very subtle difference, though. This time he's saying, if we're not under the law anymore, I guess he's thinking of a Jew here. So Jews have been set free from the law. That's what chapter 7 will say. If you're not under the law anymore, if you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments to be made right with God, can you just do whatever you want? Can you do whatever you want? Paul's answer is, you are free from the law, but true freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom to do what is right. Freedom to serve God. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 15. What then? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul gives the same answer. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the rest of chapter 6 is like one of those before and after photos. You know, the ones you see in the magazines of hair treatment or weight loss or gym membership, the before and the after. We are now having a before and after shot of when someone trusts Jesus. So Paul Paul holds up our old slavery to sin and he wants us to see how terrible it was. And then he holds up our new life in Christ where we can serve and obey God, and he wants us to see how wonderful that is, so that we will say, that's the way I want to live. I don't want to sin. Verse 17. But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, that's the old, 
you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. That's the gospel that we've been hearing about. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. See, you were a slave to sin. That's what we were um, thinking about in the first chapter of Romans, all that muck about the old life, where we rejected our creator God. And then instead of living for him, we lived for created things and we made them our God and we served them and we became slaves to them. And that way of living, it was destructive. Do you remember that? Romans one twenty nine. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife. Deceit and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. That's the before shot. That is what you were. Are you telling me that that is the way you want to live? Of course it's not. That is a terrible way to live that people are trapped in. No human being in their right mind would choose to live that way. So why do people live that way? Well, Paul says it's a slavery. It's a slavery to sin. This is where I think our society gets it really wrong. Because out there, people tend to equate sin with freedom. You've probably heard it, you know. Freedom to do what you want. Freedom to live without rules. Freedom to express your sexuality however you want. Freedom to terminate the life of your unborn child just because you want to. Freedom to end your own life when you want. Freedom to leave home early and ignore your parents. Freedom to be able to marry a person of the same gender. Freedom to have sex with no commitments. What I'm getting at here is the world uses the language of freedom. When it's talking about sin, it uses the language of freedom. But it's a slavery. God calls it what it is so that we'll see it for what it is. He says people are slaves to sin. They're slaves to pleasure. They're slaves to what other people think of them. They're slaves to wanting to be popular. They're slaves to their sexual desires. And in verse 19 there, Paul says, it is a cycle of ever-increasing wickedness. Look at verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. It's a terrible way to live. It's destructive and it has terrible consequences. That way of living ends in broken relationships. It leaves a trail of kids who are abused and separated from their families and unloved. It ends with a world that is polluted and dying. It ends with people shooting each other. It ends with marriages that are broken. That is not freedom. Would you really choose that? It is slavery to sin. And Paul wants us to compare that with the new life 
that we have in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, remember, but because of God's grace, God's generosity to us. Verse 16, Paul calls the new life obedience that leads to righteousness. Or the end of verse 19, slavery to righteousness that leads to holiness. Or verse 22, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Not now that we have to do good to earn eternal life, but part of our new life with Christ, it's not just being forgiven and having eternal life, but it's being changed to be able to live a new life now. Or over in chapter 7, verse 4, we now bear fruit for God, not fruit for death. Which one would you prefer? As a Christian... Once you realise, once you think about what you've been rescued from, you would be crazy to want to go back to it. You're getting the feel of this? Our old life of sin was terrible. We actually did what we didn't want to do. So whatever you were bound to in that old life of slavery, lying, Greed, pornography, violence, drunkenness, selfishness, whatever you were slave to in that old life, you'd be crazy to want to go back to that. Sin is not a good master. Sin is not looking out for your best interests. Sin is a bad master. It is trying to destroy your life. So chapter 6, verse 1 and 6, verse 15, we might come and we might ask, if I'm, a, if I'm forgiven, if I'm a Christian, can I sin? Paul wants to reframe that question. Paul says, no, 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 it's the wrong question. It's not just can I sin, it's not just a sin. It's taking yourself and it's putting yourself back under something that you were once enslaved to. When you lie on that financial document, It's not just a lie, it's part of your old life that you've been rescued from. When you watch pornography, you are flirting with lust and sexual desires that once controlled you. When you're selfish, you are putting yourself back under that slavery. Why would you want to do it? It's like being set set free from drug addiction and then thinking, I might just go back and try it just once. It's like an alcoholic walking back into a bar. It's like a sex addict walking back into a brothel. It's like you've just escaped from being attacked by a wild dog and you think, I'll just jump the fence and hop in with the dog one more time. It's like Israel in the Old Testament saying, we want to go back to slavery in Egypt. Why would you want to? Why are you even thinking about it? So let's come back to our fellow at the start, Daniel. He decided to leave his wife after 15 years of marriage for someone younger who makes him feel alive. And he asks the question, do you think God can forgive something as awful as I am about to do? Well, at one level, the answer is, of course, God can. God can forgive something as awful as you are about to do because God can forgive anything. God loves to forgive people. But 
do you see he's actually asking the wrong question? The question isn't, can God forgive this thing I'm about to do? The question should be, why would you want to do it? Why would you allow your body, once again, to be used by sin as an instrument of wickedness? Paul says, count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Realize who you are. See clearly the destruction that this is going to bring. So, can I tell a lie? Can I leave my marriage? Can I cheat on my tax? Can I speed in my car? Can I watch Fifty Shades of Grey or Game of Thrones? Can I live with my boyfriend? We're not married, but we're committed to each other. Can I fudge this document at work to cover up a mistake for the company? Can I sin just a little bit? Will God forgive me? Wrong question. The question is, why would you want to? Don't you see what you've been rescued from? Sin is a terrible master. It may look attractive, but it is destructive every time. It may look harmless. It traps people in slavery. Why not sin? It's not because God will drop you off the team. It's not because God won't forgive you. The question is, why would you want to? Given the fantastic new life that you've been given. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Let's pray. Father God, we have died to sin through Jesus. Thank you for that. How can we live in it any longer? And yet, Father, we confess that too often we, we minimise our sin and we play games with, with our, the forgiveness that we have. And we do things that we know we shouldn't, somehow being tricked into thinking that, that they will give us a pleasure or something that we might be missing out on. Father, help us to see and think clearly about this. Father, thank you that you actually want for us what is best, what is best for us, what is best for your world, what is best for your son, Jesus. And so, Father, help us to be excited and realise how wonderful our new life in Christ is, that we would delight to serve you. Yet as we're going to think about next week, temptation and sin is real and it is hard. So please, by your spirit, equip us and empower us to say no to sin. But this very week, whatever temptations arise this afternoon or tomorrow or later in the week, Father, help us to, to consider what you have done for us in Jesus. Help us to reflect on the forgiveness that we have and the new life that we have, that we would just delight to flee from sin and to please you. Thank you for this great reminder today of how terrible our old life is and how great you are. 
Amén.